listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Good morning. My name is Gabe DeGarmo. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Community Church. It occurred to me this morning uh, that we are right now at about six months into weekly worship services here at King's Community Church. And for, for that, I celebrate. Uh, with that, I'd say I believe now as much as ever that if we keep our eyes on the mission of bringing God's story to life, we are only at the beginning of seeing lives redeemed, families transformed, communities blessed, and more churches planted. And I'm excited to lock arms with you to see that become a reality, not just a vision. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Wired for Worship, where we've been studying the Psalms, not all 150 Psalms at once, but we're studying a handful of Psalms that that really model for us, they demonstrate for us, that worship isn't just something religious folks do at times, but rather worship is something that is involved in all of our lives all the time. And the Psalms are helping illuminate for us some of the ways we worship, or we can worship at least, Uh, that we might not even be aware of. We've talked about work as worship, and today we're going to talk about hope as worship. Hope is something that we can all get behind. Hope sounds like a good thing. Hope is, is something that we long for in troubling times. When we think about hope as an act of worship, we need to move past this idea that worship is always a joyful, feelings-oriented experience. And I would say, while worship is often associated with, with music, that's not an inherently bad thing, but that's such a limiting thing. Because it is easy to sing when life is good, but it is much harder to sing when life is difficult. We shouldn't sing songs to a weary heart, but rather we should cling to our hope cling to our hope in the midst of suffering. Uh, When I think about one of the times in my life that was the the most difficult to sing songs of worship, I needed to cling to hope as worship more than ever before. It was when our son Deacon was hit by a car and and killed in a tragic accident. It was then that I, I started to realize new dimensions of what hope was. Soon after our son Deacon died, days, maybe a week at most, a reporter had reached out to me to ask if they could do a story about our family. It was really sensitive, you can imagine. Uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was scared, but I asked him, why do you want to do this? And he said, well, I'm watching the way you're, you're grieving this from a distance, and I know in the work that I do that there's a lot of people who are hurting And I think your story might be able to encourage some of them to hope. While I was scared, I decided to go through with the interview. Within a few weeks, uh, the interview had been shown on news stations around the city where we lived, Columbus, Ohio. They had showed it multiple days because it had gained traction. And in that interview, I wanted something to happen. I wanted to go through with it because I wanted my suffering to mean something. 
I wanted my pain to be used for something good. I wanted to understand why God would allow this. And maybe through the telling of our story and other people experiencing hope, I wanted to manufacture something inside me that that made me feel better, even if it was just for a few moments. And the day that, that the interview was first televised, I remember where I was standing when a friend asked me, how do you feel? Did it make you feel any better? This is just a couple of weeks after we lost a child. I remember, I remember falling down on my knees and weeping because I hoped for something to make me feel better that was never designed to make me feel better, and I didn't feel an ounce better. I put my hope in the wrong thing. I wanted the severity of the feelings to go away. And hope, while future-oriented, is not feelings-oriented. In fact, sometimes we have to resist our feelings for hope to be an act of worship. I know I'm sharing with you an extreme story of suffering and circumstances. I know the story of a child dying is very extreme. But I want to use an extreme story to make a point that if God is trustworthy in all circumstances, the the heaviest of circumstances, then he can be trustworthy in all circumstances. So it's it's critical for us to remember that, that all people in all the world are subject to suffering. There is not a socioeconomic class. There is not a country in the world that isn't subject to experiencing pain and grief and loss. It is a part of the shared human experience throughout all of history, throughout all the earth. No matter if you've lost a loved one, a marriage, a job, a dream, an expectation, or a physical ability, no matter whether your loss is considered normal and natural, or if it's tragic and sudden, there will be times where you have to endure loss and pain. And while we do that, while we feel these feelings of suffering and grief and pain, we try to figure out where it fits in the hierarchy of pain. Whose pain is worse? Should I be feeling this way? I love how Jerry Sitzer writes the answer to that in his book, A Grace Disguised. If you're in the midst of suffering, I can't recommend this book enough. A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. This is how he describes the condition of suffering. Each experience of loss is unique. Each painful in its own way. Each as bad as everyone else's, but also different. Each and every one of us only knows our own worst pain. And that That is deep enough to understand suffering. Suffering exposes our idols. Suffering exposes what we put our hope in because when we lose it, we feel like we can't go on. So God is also doing something in the midst of our suffering. He is showing us about himself and who we are in light of him. We need to learn to be hope-filled worshipers. Our trials are times to trust God to use our pain to make us more like Christ. Let me say that again for you. Our trials are times to trust God to use our pain to make us more like Christ. And to do that, we're going to turn to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm 11 teaches us about what it looks like to be a hope-filled worshiper. And today we're going to look at four characteristics of hope-filled people that we can learn from Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11 
is a psalm of lament. If you've never heard that word before, lament is a sorrow and grief that's directed toward God for hope and comfort. Isn't it sweet that the Bible, the word of God to us, would include psalms of lament for when our grieving and hurting hearts need to be directed to our Savior? It's a psalm of lament, and I'm gonna, it's only seven verses long. I'm going to read it all for us. Uh, this psalm, any psalm of lament, should help us hold on to Christ more. Listen to what Psalm 11 says. I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. The first characteristic of hope-filled worshipers is that hope-filled people cry out to God in all types of circumstances. Hope-filled people cry out to God in all types of circumstances. In the midst of this psalm, we don't know exactly what's going on, what the cause of David's sorrows are. We do know that he's under some sort of attack, but we don't know if they're real, tangible, literal arrows being shot at him. We don't know if they're verbal attacks from other kingdoms trying to undermine his authority as king and prove that the God that they worship in Israel is not God. We don't know exactly what's going on that David is lamenting, but we do know he's the target of some wicked attack. It is important for Christians to understand that the Christian life is not this pattern of health, wealth, and trouble-free living where each day is better than the last. We are in a world of troubles. We are in a world that experiences brokenness. We've talked about this already in our series, Wired for Worship. At the inception of sin into the good world that God created, everything became corrupted. Everything became perverted. Everything became twisted and broken. So, of course, we're going to experience brokenness in this world. We can't believe the lie that life is inherently cheerful just because we're followers of God. The truth is that trouble will come. Trouble will come for all of us. It'll come in different forms. Sometimes it'll be verbal or mental. Sometimes it will be physical. But no matter where you are in this life, Trouble will come. That was the message that we were given in Genesis at this point when sin entered in the world and we call it the fall. That is the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, the Messiah, the Savior comes. And part of his message to his disciples is take heart. In this world, you will experience trial and tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, take heart, you might experience trials and tribulations. He said, take heart, in this world you will experience trials and tribulations. But I have overcome the world. 
From Genesis to Revelation, the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see the message that even God's people will endure suffering. So what do we do? We lament. We cry out to God in the middle of our distress with hopes that he will comfort us. And friend, if you are in a place where you're grieving, let me tell you, you do not have to give a sanitized version of your cries. In fact, I think it's more worshipful at times when we're giving snot-nosed, crying tears, telling God how honestly we feel about the state of this world and the pain that we're enduring. You do not have to sanitize your grief when you talk to God. You do not have to be cheerful in the depths of your pain. You don't have to hold back tears when your heart is broken. It is our encouragement to go to God in all these circumstances, though. This is an important point where I'd like to make a, a distinction between the state of suffering and grief and the state and, and the trait of suffering, suffering and grief. Uh, a state is something that, that is for a fixed amount of time. It's usually circumstantial. It's usually when something bad happens, we'll experience the state of suffering. And it has a beginning, middle, and end. And then we get back to what we would consider normalcy in life. But there's something different than that. That's the, that's the trait this pattern of sadness throughout all of your life that flares up at times and it never seems to go away. You, you wake up with a low-grade sadness most days. Let me say that, that what Psalm 11 is speaking to is the state of suffering, the state of grief, the state of depression in the midst of a sad circumstance. However, the Bible also speaks into the trait of depression. And we're not talking about that today because that's not what Psalm 11 is talking about. We will talk about it in two weeks, though. Two weeks from today, we're going to talk about depression and anxiety and the fact that, that there might be more things we need to do other than the four characteristics of hope-filled worshipers today. So put a pin in that if you've experienced depression and anxiety because we're going to talk about it in two weeks. But for today, we're talking about these moments of circumstances leading us to sadness, depression, grief, and how to hope in the midst of that. The point of this first characteristic of hope-filled people is hope-filled people cry out to God in all types of circumstances. So I ask you, where do you run in times of trouble? Who or what do you trust to comfort you or save you from sadness and grief and loss? That usually points to who you worship or what you worship. Hope-filled people cry out to God in all types of circumstances. Secondly, we see that hope-filled people consider the source of the advice that they're getting. If you read Psalm chapter 11 carefully, you'll realize that, that David quickly says, I will turn to the Lord as my refuge. And then he goes on to say, how can you tell me to get out of here in the midst of my problems? So who's he speaking to? He's talking to his advisors, his counselors, who are telling him, escape to the mountains like a bird. Get out of here. Look, David, they got arrows on their bows. It's time to go. But David responds to them, how could I do that when I've taken my refuge in God? It is critical that we consider the source of our counseling when we're in the midst of suffering. I'm going to throw it back to a high school English class here for a second. In high school English, uh, hopefully you learned something about genres in literature, right? Three of you did. Okay, great. 
genres are different writing styles that try to communicate different things at different times. And let me tell you, friends, the Bible isn't just a book. It's a collection of 66 different books written throughout history. And some of those different books have different genres. Some of them are historical narrative, things that happen to real people, real events, and real human history. Other parts of the Bible are letters that were written from one real person to a group of real people. We have psalms, which are like songs or spiritual, spiritual hymns that we sing, that we learn. But there's also a type of literature. There's also a genre called wisdom literature. And if you look at your table of contents in the Bible, you'll see Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Those are Old Testament books of wisdom literature. Some Bible scholars look at the New Testament and they say the book of James is, is like a, a more contemporary version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Wisdom literature is filled with pithy statements about how to honor God in all types of circumstances. They're principles to live by to worship God. Wisdom literature points out that there are three types of people. There are wise people, there are foolish people, and there are evil people. We need to know this when we consider the source of our counsel. There are wise people, there are evil people, and there are foolish people. Let's start with evil people because we're not going to talk about that a whole lot. Evil people are people that are proactively trying to thwart the plan of God in day-to-day -day life. They hear the word of God and they're trying to prevent that from coming to fruition. That's evil people. Now, what's the difference between wise people and foolish people? The challenge is wise people and foolish people are both often people with good intentions not evil intentions to thwart the plan of God, but, but good intentions to try to help out. The difference is that a wise person is always going to push you towards holiness, God-centeredness, increased faith. A foolish person is going to say, you do you to try to get what you need in this season. They might have great intentions. You think about your life and where do you run for counsel? Who do you listen to for advice? Some people run to family. Some people run to friends. Some people try different religions, and they'll stick with it as long as it works for the result that they're aiming for. Where do you go for counsel? You know, advertisements, 30-second spots of advertisements, bend over backwards to try to create stories that you find yourself in. They identify a need that you have. And they counsel you to take their product in order to have a life that you've dreamed of. And you can't experience that without that product. Some of us run to ads to, to try to fill those holes of suffering and pain and replace them with, with feelings of pleasure. Some of us even identify with characters in shows that we watch. And we see the way that they navigate their fictional story. And we try to do things like them in order that, that maybe we can get the result that the 30-minute TV program showed us. We run to all sorts of places to get advice and counsel. Where do you go? The Bible says to seek wisdom, not foolishness. Foolishness might say to the suffering soul, go for that retail therapy. Go treat yourself. It'll feel good. But it's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. The feelings aren't sustainable. They might say, stay away from church for a little while. Get your, get your heart right. You don't need that, that experience. Go be by yourself, heal up, and then come back. You might have gone through something grave 
and you need a little bit of time away. But the truth is, the body of Christ exists for one another. That's foolish to think that separation from the body would help you heal. If you cut a broken finger off the body, it's not going to heal. It needs to be mended in the body. That's foolishness to think leaving the church is an answer to our suffering. And I'm talking about the church at large. If you're in a dysfunctional church that is oppressing you and causing suffering, you need to be, you need to find a healthy environment. Hopefully I'm speaking to people who are not here. <laughs> Retail therapy, love, leave church. Another one, a common one, is get drunk. I'll buy the first round. Forget these feelings for a little while. Use this substance to inhibit you from feeling the pain in your life. Or go get revenge on that person who hurt you. There are plenty of sources of advice and counsel that will tell you to do something counter to the will of God. That is foolish. The book of Ecclesiastes says it's like a vapor. It's like a spray bottle. Spray and then it's gone. It won't sustain you. It won't create healing in the midst of your suffering. It will actually cause you to feel more empty at the end of the day. So some people in this room are grieving right now, and, and they want to understand the characteristics of hope-filled people. But some of us are at a pretty good time in life, and we might be the source of counsel for other people. Let me help you avoid some mistakes that foolish counsel will provide. And these are people who are genuinely trying to comfort the hurting. Uh, I, I remember soon, like the day after our son died, a pastor friend of mine, I was texting with him this morning to thank him again for this. A pastor came over to my house and, and he just hugged me and, and embraced me and said to me, the day after my son died, you're going to need to be strong. People are going to say some stupid things. Let it roll off of you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And guess what? It happened. This is some of what I experienced that I want to share with you to avoid the mistakes of trying to genuinely comfort people who are hurting in a wrong way. Mistake number one, be the fix-it person. Please do not guarantee people healing in this life. Please do not do that. That is above your pay grade. God may heal people who are suffering in this life. He promises he will in the life to come, but it is not your responsibility or your right to promise people healing in the midst of their suffering. In fact, one of the, the men in the scriptures who honors God, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. His name's Paul. He's an apostle. He's devoted his life to the advancement of the church. He's pleading with God in this letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Will you take away this pain? Will you take away this thorn in my flesh? And he tells his listeners, I pleaded three times for the Lord to take it away. And I heard a voice speak to me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It may be the case that God is choosing to not heal someone so that he can draw them nearer to him. Do not be the fix-it person. Instead, as you come alongside someone who's grieving, say, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Can you help me understand what you're feeling right now? And practice the ministry of presence. You don't need to fix it. Mistake number two, explaining their suffering away. When someone is suffering, 
the first thing you should not say is, well, we live in the midst of a sinful world. What can you expect? Is that true? Yeah. Is that helpful? No. Also, don't explain to people how God's certainly going to use this in these specific ways and make you feel better. That's what I was longing for when I did that news story, that those feelings of grief would be replaced with feelings of joy, or maybe at least the grief would subside a little bit. But we live in a world with pain. We live in a world with hurt. Don't be a person that explains their suffering. Instead, come alongside them and take time to understand how the person is doing spiritually. Make yourself available to go get cups of coffee and ask questions and listen. That is so much better for the grieving soul than telling them how God is going to redeem this pain. While he might, again, that's not your responsibility or right to tell people that. Don't be the fix-it person. Don't explain their suffering. Thirdly, don't promise deliverance. One of, the, one of the worst things that I was told on multiple occasions, my wife and I experienced people uh, who would promise us, God's going to replace your son with something. And then something beautiful happened by the grace of God, but it gave foolish people ammunition. My wife got pregnant again after our son died, and we found out we were having another boy. And on multiple occasions, when people would find out we were having a son, they'd just smile and say, see, God's replacing what you lost. Church, you are in proximity with hurting people who need hope. Do not give them false hope. God is not a vending machine. We don't put a couple of coins in. We don't put a couple of prayers in and get the results that we want. He will give us everything we need to navigate our suffering. But if you're sitting across the table from someone who's enduring hardships, do not promise them deliverance in this life. You do not have the authority to do that. You can, however, gently, lovingly, in due time, remind people that we have hope. But it's not your role to promise deliverance. This church is, this, is why having Christian community is so significant. This is why we cannot afford to abandon the church in the midst of our pain. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 1 right at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You need the church for when you go through suffering. But let me also say the church needs you. God is in the business of redemption. There will be a day when your wounds are healed and they will not be healed in vain. They will be healed for the purpose of God's glory advancing through you. To others. 
if you have suffered, you need the church. If you have suffered, the church needs you because you're going to extend the comfort that was afforded to you through Jesus Christ. Consider the source of your advice to be a hope-filled worshiper. Seek wise counsel. Wise counsel will always gently, lovingly point you to Jesus. Thirdly, we see that hope-filled people know the truth. While David addresses the wrong thinking of his advisors, he recites back to them truth about who God is. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. What's David saying? After he hears the foolish counsel from his advisors, he speaks truth. It is critical that we are equipped to push back the darkness and lies in this life. Throughout the scriptures, we have the imagery that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. We need ammunition to push back the darkness. And David has ammunition. What is his ammunition? He knows who God is. David is declaring that God didn't change in the midst of my suffering. It was common for pagans, people who didn't follow the God of David, to assume that if anyone was going through suffering or trials or hard circumstances, that their God had either fallen asleep or forgotten that they were there. And David is saying, my God didn't change. He stays where he is. He doesn't move, and he is always watching. David is equipped to fight back against the darkness that is trying to seep into his life. What does this mean for us? We need to know the truth. Sailors in this time, before they would go out to sea, would, would get their ship, and the very first thing they would do is fill the ballast of the ship, the bottom center, the innermost parts of the ship. They would fill it with heavy weights in order that when they got on rough waters or when a storm came, the ship would be stabilized. Not if they came on rough waters, when they came on rough waters. We are like the ship. We need to fill our ballast with the weight of God's word in order that when trials come, when storms come into our lives, we are prepared to combat that by saying, declaring even, I know the one who created the wind and the waves and can silence and calm them. We cannot avoid suffering, but we can speak truth into it that will keep our lives stable in the midst of the storms. Fill the ballast of your life with truth about God. Where does that come from? It comes from his word. God is so kind and generous that he wants us to know it. Are you prioritizing the word of God in your life? Because if you're not, when, when storms and trials and hardships come, you're going to be blown about in every different direction. Fill your ballast with the word of God. That's what David knows. How are you prioritizing reading and engaging the Bible? Do you have a plan to do that throughout your day-to-day -day lives? Fourth, a characteristic that we see is that hope-filled people keep their eyes on the future to direct their steps in the present. Hope, again, is future tense. 
you really have to understand this last line of Psalm 11. The upright will see his face. That is the perfect bookend to someone who takes their refuge in God. Because David knows God. David knows the story of God. David knows that it's true that, that for sinners whose eyes and minds are tainted, they cannot comprehend the righteousness of God. Therefore, they cannot look at God without being destroyed by his righteousness. That's the truth of the scriptures. People could not see God. They had to trust God. So if God would move and someone was going to see him, the way they describe it is that God would go before them and they would get to see maybe a glimpse of his shadow afterwards. But we couldn't comprehend looking at God. But David knows truth. He says the righteous will see his face. That's the great gift of the gospel. Not that we get God's stuff, but that we get restored back to God. Centuries before Jesus stepped foot on this earth, David has trust that the Messiah will come and answer the promise and be the solution and that David will get to be the recipient of that great gift to be able to see him. Hope is future-oriented, not feelings-oriented. Hope-filled people keep their eyes on the future to direct their steps in the present. Our greatest hope is to be restored back to God, which begs the question for us. When do we get to see God? <laughs> what time are we hoping for? Again, because he's so good to us, he gives us a picture of that in the very last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation. One of the friends and followers of Jesus, his name is John has been given a revelation of what's to come. And he shares that with us. By the grace of God, we have a picture of what it looks like when we get to see Jesus. Listen to these beautiful words that John has given us in chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. The picture that we get of when we finally get to see God, this picture of, of heaven and earth colliding and God not taking us back to the garden, but taking us forward to a heavenly city where all his people will be around him, praising him for what he's done. And what is the first act of the resurrected Jesus stepping down from his throne in our heavenly kingdom? He will take the corner of his robe and wipe away every tear from every eye of every saint in all of human history. Our first act of worship in our forever home is for the sadness and suffering to go away and the hope to be sight. 
And that sight isn't in our circumstances. That sight is a person, the one who makes all things right. His name is Jesus. How on earth do we know that we can put our hope in Jesus? First and foremost, I would, I would say it's because he suffered in our place. When I was interviewed on the news uh, for that time I told you about earlier, I was asked a question about what this tragedy meant for my faith. And I said, it's, it's caused me to understand that I don't know that I could worship a God who knew nothing of suffering. But my God chose suffering. And while it would have been easy for God to say to his righteous son that uh, for he who loves his righteous son, he was going to give him the world. God said God was going to give his son for the sake of the world. God is so unlike me, and for that I can worship him. We can trust God because he chose suffering through Jesus, and we can also trust God because he didn't just die in our place, he resurrected to conquer suffering, sin, and our greatest enemy, death. So our hope isn't in a distant deity, our hope is in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Tim Keller has often said that it's not the strength of our faith that's the most important thing, but that weak faith is still faith. So if, if you're suffering and you feel like your faith is weak, I would love to read this to you. It comes from his book, The Reason for God. Tim Keller says, imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and seems more than strong enough. How can it save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. What matters is the object of our faith, and God is trustworthy. If you are struggling to believe, reach. What does this mean for us? How do we go from this place as hope-filled worshipers? The first thing I would say is remember to fill the ballast of the ship. When you get up in the morning, do you have a plan for the word of God to anchor you in the case that storms would come? If you've never done that before, I would encourage you to start reading the book of Mark. The Bible is a big book. You don't have to read it from beginning to end. We can talk about that more after the service if you want to know about it. But I would encourage you to just start reading the New Testament gospel, Mark, and as you read every day a little piece, ask yourself, what does this say about God and what did Jesus come to do? That's your beginning. If, if, if you're already a Christ follower, I would encourage you to keep prioritizing, filling the ballast of your life with the good news of who God is and what he's come to do. That is for all of us. But if you're not currently suffering, I want to give you one more suggestion that you can do from this. If you have the hope of Christ in you, be a hope dealer. Don't give people the false hopes 
that God's going to fix it in this lifetime, that, that you can explain their suffering or promise them deliverance. Don't do that. Be present with people. Pray for people. One of the best gifts that I was given for the first six months after our son died was a guy asked me if he could just text me truth once in a while. And boy, it would hit me when I wasn't expecting it because I didn't know when he was going to text me. Maybe that's what you can do for someone. Ask, may I pray for you? May I share truth with you and just text it to you once in a while? In between those times, maybe we can get a cup of coffee and I can just hear how you're doing right now. Let the ministry of presence open the door for you to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Be a hope dealer. You can't manufacture hope, but you can distribute it. Who is our hope in? The Father who promised us we could have hope. Jesus who secured our hope. The Spirit that reminds us of our hope. I pray that you can take comfort in our source of hope. Heavenly Father, I pray for the people that are, that are suffering right now. God, I pray that the good news of who you are and what you've done through, through a horrible, bloody cross and a glorious resurrection would instill hope in the sufferers in this place. God, I pray that you would Give them the courage to cry out for you. That you would give them the benefit of identifying wise counsel. That you would help them remember truth. And that they would keep their eyes fixed on the future in order that they could keep walking with you in the present. God, for any of us that, that aren't in the midst of suffering right now, give us the diligence to fill the ballast of our souls mm -hmm. with truth about you. And God, give us the courage to be hope dealers, speaking truth and gentleness and love in order that the hope of the gospel can help transform people from death to life. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.